Welcome to Democratic Campaigns. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. A somewhat weekly podcast with leaders of the Democratic Party, candidates, campaign managers, volunteers, operatives, and uh, up to hundreds of thousands of people that are trying to grow and build our Democratic Party, take back our government from what is often a dystopian nightmare of the worst president (laughs) of our lifetimes. Uh, I'm really excited to have on the podcast and honored the youngest Democratic State Party chair uh, currently, maybe in history, come to think of it, uh, Anna Langthorne is the chair of the Oklahoma Democratic Party and is joining us from Oklahoma. Anna, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Did you, did anybody say whether you're the youngest of all time? Is that possible? Yeah, well, I think it's certainly possible. Um, that is everyone's suspicion. You know, I think there's been varied levels of record keeping over time, but uh, we're fairly confident that I'm the youngest ever in Oklahoma of both parties. Um, definitely the youngest currently. I think the DNC has told us that I'm the youngest female for sure ever um, and potentially the youngest. So. That's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, Anna you. is 24 years old. Um, so it means you're born in what, 91? 92. 92. So almost born in the Clinton administration. Yes. I, uh, I, my birthday's in October, so a month, a month before Bill Clinton was elected. I mean, that's amazing, right? So (laughs) Clinton was the nominee. There were presidential debates involving Bill Clinton, and a party chair was born at that time. That's pretty cool. As you look around the country, what is it that you see? Yeah. So I well, first I'll admit that I have a very Oklahoma centric centric focus. That is that is where my energy has always been focused, and what I'm focused on now. Uh, Why I decided to do it is kind of a, a long big picture conversation. I work on campaigns, or I previously worked on campaigns professionally. That's what I did for a living for the last seven years. And there is a conversation happening right now that I'm sure you're aware of about the value of state party organizations, particularly in red states where, you know, their effectiveness is not being proven. And a big push for third party campaigns for independent expenditures, for super PACs, for whatever. And that conversation was happening a lot in Oklahoma. There was a lot of consensus among um, political professionals that it was not worth the time and resources and effort to try to reform the Democratic Party as an organization because it was just going to be, you know, this time suck and you were never going to succeed. And I have always been a dissenter in that conversation. (laughs) I have always felt that, you know, when I was working on campaigns, when I was working with candidates, that the things that I felt we were failing at or were lacking were things that the state party should take responsibility for were things like voter registration and and party building you know to have a strong volunteer culture you need to have an organization that is working 365 days a year to build that volunteer culture to communicate with voters you need to be working 365 days a year to communicate we can't rely on campaigns to work in the last six months before the election and you know ideally a candidate's working the full two years but we know that their their concentrated field effort their concentrated male effort is going to be in that last six months and by that point most voters have already made up their mind because they've been watching the news right they've been paying attention or not not actually paying attention but paying attention to a single narrative and so if we wanted to counteract that narrative we needed a strong party structure that was doing that year-round 
Uh, and that's just always how I felt is that that infrastructure needed to be there and that the problem with, with super PACs or independent expenditures was that they were going to run into the same thing, that they were going to build up either a year or six months before an election. They were going to try to accomplish their goal. They were you know, going to accomplish their goal to varying levels. And then they were going to shut back down after the election cycle was o over. And we were going to have that same you know, year and a half gap where where we weren't doing anything and and in a state like Oklahoma where we are we are behind right where we have a super minority and no statewide offices and no con congress people that like that's not going to work so uh, that's always been my attitude after this cycle i really strongly felt that we had to make a change now in our state party infrastructure and i asked a bunch of other people to run and they told me no and so i started to have the conversation with myself where you know if i I firmly believed this. I felt that it was so important, you know, why not myself? And the only reasons I could come up with was that I was so young, that I was a young woman and that people wouldn't take me seriously. And as someone who, who encourages women to run for office, that that has been a primary focus of my career, I couldn't, I couldn't let that be the thing that deterred me. And yeah. so here we are. That's awesome. Um, tell me when you think about party infrastructure, and um, you know somebody maybe got turned on after the election of Trump mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason wasn't engaged and they say uh, look I live in Oklahoma what do I do uh, mm -hmm. to what what do you tell that that young person or that person whoever whatever. yeah <laughs> so that has been a, a struggle that we've we've been dealing with here we've had a huge huge explosion of interest in getting involved with the party and we did have a very atrophied party infrastructure and so now you know i've been in office for two weeks we're in week three um trying to rebuild some of that and give these volunteers opportunities to do things i i really we are in a unique position where we've actually got six remaining we'll have seven total special le legislative elections in 2017. so right now um why where i'm pointing them is go work on these special elections but in a normal odd numbered year where we didn't have those, you know, I would be pushing strong um, absentee ballot campaigns, right? We train low turnout Democratic voters to consistently vote by absentee ballot. You know, we are changing the electric, we're increasing our turnout. And that's an opportunity for us in odd numbered years to engage with voters, get them participating in the process so that in the even numbered years, they're still doing it. The other thing uh, is we know we've got to change our electorate. We know that there's a you know, huge proportion of Oklahomans who don't vote. And my personal theory, and I think a lot of people share this theory, is that those people, if they did vote, would probably be somewhat progressive voters, right? That they're either members of marginalized communities and that they're people of color, or they are um, low-income, working-class people who aren't voting because they've got other things going on. And if we could get them to vote, they would vote for Democrats. So it's Absolutely. the other... The other thing is doing an intense voter registration campaign in the odd numbered year, which doesn't, I don't think, should be the responsibility of candidates, right? Candidates, if they're going to work smart, they're going to work on established voters who they know are going to vote. It's our job as the party to develop new voters for them to go to in their campaigns. Man, that's refreshing. Because, <laughs> well, look, most people that are volunteers in an odd numbered year, there's not a campaign to work on. Right. And... Um, you know, what, 69 million people voted for Hillary and 63 mm -hmm. million people voted for Trump and 100 million people didn't vote, eligible citizens. Um, so if the, the call to action in an odd-numbered year is go register somebody to vote once a week, um, 
man, that helps build our base, doesn't it? Right, right. Um, how I know you're only two weeks in, so maybe it's more what are your plans rather than um, yeah. uh, accomplishments. But tell me about, given your uh, experience and the direction you want to go, tell me the kind of voter registration campaign you're, you're planning to execute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I said, we've got um, six now special elections. We had a Republican resign yesterday. Uh, so we've got six special elections, and so that's where a lot of our voter registration efforts are going to be focused is in those special election districts um, in precincts that we know are likely Democratic precincts, with ha- which have high percentages of unregistered voters. And honestly, I want to treat it just like any other um, campaign activity. You know, direct voter contact is always the best way to go, so have people canvas door-to-door with voter registration forms mm-hmm. uh, to collect as many as we can. And then after those are over, apply that same, you know, we've got data from the DNC that tells us which precincts are the most likely for us to register Democrats in and apply, provide provide that information to our county party leaders and help them build regular voter registration events where they go into those precincts and do those canvassing events. And then the, the other upside of this is we're training volunteers to canvass because we don't have a very strong volunteer culture in Oklahoma. So we train them this year to canvass doing voter registration because that's really what all voters want or volunteers want to do anyways. And then mm. in 2018, when it's time for, for real campaigns for candidates, you know, they already know how to knock doors because they've been doing it. And what do you find uh, or what do you plan to do to uh, uh, build that volunteer culture? Talk a little bit more about how, how we can do that. Yeah, it's it's a struggle here. Um, we we just don't have it at all. We started to build it a little bit this last year. Uh, I think it's it's the science on this already exists, right? And anybody who knows what they're doing has already you know done this research, participated in these successful campaigns. But that one, I think we have to make sure that we are capturing people as soon as they express interest, right? So that and and we're. I will admit we're struggling with this right now just because of transition and turnover and and trying to stay on top of things. But as soon as someone fills out a form online or calls or expresses any kind of interest that we immediately are scheduling them for an event, right? That that's within the next two weeks that we're not saying, oh, hey, let us get back to you. We don't have anything going on right now because that's how you lose people, right? Um, That ideally we're scheduling them for events that are friendly, that are volunteer friendly to begin with, right? That we're not giving them super challenging things we're not having them call you know persuadable republicans and try to convince them to vote for democrats that we're having them register voters or you know do some kind of easy event go to democrats and try to get them to sign up for absentee ballots Uh, but that we consistently have things for them to do that we're engaging them with them we're following up with them and then and then that we're showing them returns right because the theory of change is a thing if they show up and they don't feel like they're accomplishing anything then we failed them. We need them to show up and be able to say, okay, you did this, and as a result of your action, this is the change that you have made. And it might be a small change, but it's still going to be a measurable change that we can show to them so that they're engaged and want to come back. That's great. Uh, Democratic Campaigns Podcast here with uh, Anna Langthorne, the chair of the Oklahoma Democratic Party. This podcast brought to you by Campaign Filer. CampaignFiler.com is political software for campaign reporting and compliance, now launched with multi-user and multi-organizational features. Um, Check out CampaignFiler.com. Do you, uh, on the measurable uh, successes for volunteers, do you have, uh, are you building towards uh, a win number 
or mm-hmm. the number of Democrats that you want to convert from election day to absentee voters? Is that part of the plan? Yes, that is part of the plan. And I, I have those numbers for our special election districts. We don't quite have like a, a statewide plan yet to present because that's my part of it is and I hate to to use the word trickle down. So we'll say <laughs> we'll say, you know, grassroots. But that the goal is that we we provide some of these directives, we provide training and tools, and we empower our local party officers to take on these things so that we go to Woodward County or McIntosh County or, you know, these we 77 counties in the state of Oklahoma that all have three county officers in the party. And we say, you know, these are, we'd like you to register 200, 500, 1,000, whatever it is, new Democrats, you know, this year. These are the tools and techniques. These are days that we're going to have events that we'd love for you to partner with us. Um, but that we kind of empower them to take ownership of those goals and accomplish those goals. And then we can all, you know, we've done them. We can all pat ourselves on the back. But yeah, we are, it's, Oklahoma has an interesting history because we were formerly a, you know, somewhat Southern democratic state. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a part of Oklahoma that is referred to as Little Dixie. And Mm -hmm. we're trying to get away from that. (laughs) But our history is that not even 30 years ago, we had democratic control. We had democratic congressmen. We had democratic uh, statewide officers that we had super majorities in both legislative houses. Uh, And I'm trying to remember the point of that. Oh, the point of that was that we, our registration gap is actually not that wide. Um, Now we have a lot of Democrats that don't vote for Democrats, but the, the number of Republicans that out, out, number us registration wise they only surpassed us three years ago Hmm. uh and so it's not actually that much work to to fill that registration gap and it's a it's kind of a two-point thing in that you know we have to recognize that just because someone is a registered democrat doesn't mean they're necessarily voting for democrats but on the other hand having a higher number of registered democrats than registered republicans in any district we know convinces donors convinces stakeholders that that district is viable even if that's not really a representation of of the the competitiveness of that district but so it's another tool that i think we should be working to to try to re-engage um donors and stakeholders and volunteers is to say look we registered this many democrats in this district and we've now outnumbered republicans you should get involved you should participate in us flipping this seat Speaking of flipping seats, um, if people around the country um, want to help out on the special elections, mm-hmm. um, if it's not up today, um, how can they um, how can they help from afar? Yeah, so uh, we will always, always, always take donations. You can donate at okdemocrats.org/donate, and we are actually going to be hiring. So for all for all our campaign junkies, we're going to be hiring two field organizers. Um, because there are six special elections, like I said, three are in the Oklahoma City metro area and three are in the Tulsa metro area. And so we'll be having an organizer in each of those places. We're partnering with the DNC to receive a grant for that, but it is a matching grant. So um, every donation will help us pay for those organizers to be on the ground, to be doing the things we're talking about, registering voters, recruiting volunteers, getting people to sign up for absentee ballots. And and these districts, they're, um, they're probably... What most people they most people wouldn't consider them competitive districts um, in a normal election year, but they are competitive enough that in a special election they are all winnable because we know that turnout's going to be very very low, 
Uh, and so the margins are going to be a lot narrower. And so if we can run these successful absentee ballot campaigns, we can win six legislative seats in, in Oklahoma, and that could make a huge difference in our ability to accomplish our policy goals when session comes back. That's great. How much do you need to raise? That's a question that I should be able to give you the answer to, <laughs> but I can't give you the answer to right this moment. I apologize. Oh, no problem. No problem. Um, um, tell me, um, what's your best pitch? I know um, we live it, but for people that might be new to it, why should somebody write a regular check to a state party rather than wait for the campaign, particularly the presidential campaign with its yeah. circumstance and excitement? Yeah. So, so this goes back to what I was saying earlier, but it, particularly in Oklahoma, we cannot, like in any way, shape, or form, expect to be successful if we think if we only talk to voters six months every two years, right? If we start talking to them in June of the even-numbered year, or even in April of the even-numbered year, we are not going to persuade them. We're not going to engage new voters. We're not going to persuade current voters, and we're going to continue to lose elections. So the function of the state party, what the state party offers that not, no one else offers, whether it's a super PAC, whether it's, an, whether it's a campaign, is that we are the only people who are constantly communicating with voters all the time, 365 days a year, about what's happening in the legislature, what Republicans are doing, what Democrats are doing. And if we don't have the funds to communicate, then we're going to continue to lose election. If we don't have the funds to hire organizers and build volunteer cultures and get people to sign up for absentee ballots and get people to register to vote, then our electorate's going to stay the same. They're going to hear the same news, and come election day, they're going to vote for Republicans again. Even if they've been hearing from a great candidate for six months, it takes more than six months to convince people to change their whole ideology. Amen. That is absolutely true. <laughs> and, you know, we uh, candidates tend not to promote their party. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in October, there's just a blizzard of names to remember because mm -hmm. they're all independents mm -hmm. at that point. So yes, yes. Right, nice to build a brand, to build that base. Um, tell me one of your favorite war stories. My favorite war stories? Um, I don't know. I'm honestly, at this point, this is this is a weird thing to say, but I do a lot of um, off-cycle work, or I have done a lot of off-cycle work. So I've worked in both like standard partisan electoral races. I've worked in nonpartisan city council races. I've worked in tribal council elections. So I've worked on 70 campaigns in the last seven years. And so honestly, like it all kind of blurs together. Sure. Um, and things that, you know, five years ago, I would have been like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Now I'm like, oh yeah, that's pretty standard. So can well, you like, give- Give me some, like nobody's worked on a tribal race, right? So like, okay. that's that's gotta be amazing. What, what's that? Yeah. Give me a little flavor of that. Uh, so tribal races are, and, and I will give the disclaimer that there are 39 federally recognized tribes in the state of Oklahoma. They all are culturally different. Their politics are all different. And so I have primarily, primarily worked in the Cherokee Nation and my work in the Cherokee Nation is not re necessarily reflective of other tribal cultures. One of the things that I most appreciate or find most fascinating about, um, Cherokee politics is that... There, it's a sense of duality, and it's what it's part of what um, has convinced me that like 
it's a not necessarily a messaging or it is a messaging problem but it's it's more a lack of communication problem is that Cherokee voters live in northeastern Oklahoma for the most part that's where the Cherokee Nation is it is traditionally a democratic area but also traditionally a conservative area and has been one of those places where we've been consistently losing rural legislative seats in eastern Oklahoma. We used to have a Democratic congressman there, but we don't anymore. But so Cherokee voters, um, the Cherokee Nation government is is very, very progressive. The Cherokee Nation government provides health care, provides housing, provides food. Um, you know, mm. they have every Cherokee Nation employee, they employ about 13,000 people, I think. They have a, a higher minimum wage. I think their minimum wage is 10 or 12, 50 or something like that. They have paid wow. maternity leave. Uh, it's a very progressive government. Uh, and Cherokee voters want it that way. When you're talking about Cherokee elections, Cherokee voters absolutely think not only should they have free health care, but that they shouldn't have to wait in line for their free health care, right? That they should they should get their services as quickly as they need and want them. That, you know, everyone, one of the big things that uh, the chief that I worked for, that he did, that we talked a lot about was that um, they they started paying for contract health services. So it was previously you would just go to the hospital, but now they pay for hearing aids and eyeglasses and dentures and those kinds of things for Cherokee citizens. But when you talk to a Cherokee Nation voter about state politics about or, or about U.S. politics rather than Cherokee politics, they tend to be very conservative. Right. Hmm. So in in their Cherokee government, not and not across the board, only just because, again, we're talking about voters in northeastern Oklahoma. But there's a duality there of recognizing that with and I don't I don't think there's an awareness of it, but wrecking within their own government, wanting hmm. these services provided to them by the government, but with the U.S. government or the state government not wanting those services. But but beyond that, when we're talking about the campaign techniques of it, it's all the same. Um, I actually my absentee philosophy came from working on Cherokee elections and and their elections are are different than state elections in the sense that we have a lot more as campaigns we have a lot more flexibility to engage voters and it's it's pretty great so we can actually um, collect absentee ballot request forms and um, the ballots now the ballots can't be tampered with they have to be like sealed but we can collect those and turn those into the election board ourselves or the election commission hmm. ourselves and so we have the ability to keep really great data hmm. um because you can say okay this person we collected their form we know they're going to vote for us then like you can chase that form with a notary and collect their ballot and say okay we know we have this many ballots to turn in this is how many are outstanding so like that hmm. election math is really great and we can't do that in state elections um, sure. but but it's still it comes down to direct voter contact just like anywhere else that you know, you want to knock as many doors as you can. Um, it's it's northeast rural Oklahoma, so there's those challenges. There's snakes and dogs and and roads right. that are broken down, and you you try to get through those. But so that's that's Cherokee yeah. elections. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty awesome, right? It's a it's a unique unique experience. Um, Huh, it's like a, a little bit of uh, Northern Europe in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, share, if you could, as we close, sort of um, your best tip or technique, maybe on absentee campaigns yeah. um, that other campaigns uh, can emulate. Yeah, so I, I really think I have strong feelings about absentee ballots, and I think that in, in every state, every government has different rules on these but generally you can you know get people to sign up for absentee ballots and 
there's varying levels of how much you can participate with them signing up, but you can find out who has signed up for ballots and you can chase those ballots. And here in Oklahoma, we, we have to have ballots notarized. And so, you know, we, Oh my gosh, are you serious? Yeah. Um, oh. but part of, part of what we do is we build teams of notaries and you have to have ballots notaries and notarized and a person can only notarize 20 ballots unless they're oh notarizing gosh. them during their business hours at their place of work. But wow, we have notaries canvas absentee ballot voters and say, Hey, did you receive your ballot? Can we notarize it for you? Uh, and so we just, we chase those ballots hard. We keep that data. Um, so we say, okay, we know that, you know, these many people signed up for absentee ballots. We've ID'd them as our voters. We've chased them to get their ballots turned in, or they've confirmed to us that they've turned our, their ballots in. And it's, it's just another one, like direct voter contact tool, but two, giving you the information you need on election day to to have more confidence, right? To say, okay, we've won this election because we know that we've got 70% of the absentee ballots. Um, yeah, you banked them. Yeah. And so that's... Wow. That's amazing. You have to notarize <laughs> ballots. That is yes. hardcore. Yeah. Wow. Well, good for you for doing that. That's awesome. Um, that is a great takeaway that uh, particularly in the odd-numbered years, um, we should be locking in our base vote and getting our folks on absentee ballots, including listeners and regular people. <laughs> we all should sign up for absentee ballots and bank our own votes uh, yeah. because things happen on Election Day and we yep. ought to be otherwise occupied on Election Day pulling out some other votes. Yep. Thank you for the insight and the stories. And Langthorne, the youngest party chair in the history of the Republic for the Democratic Party. We're calling it here now without any real data to support it, but why not? Certainly the youngest female <laughs> party chair in the history of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, Anna, congratulations on your recent victory and all your work. And thank you for being on the Democratic Campaigns podcast. Okay, thank you.